Section 13 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 1, The First Invasion of France, Part 3. The letter which Benedict wrote on this occasion was very unlike the usual style of papal correspondence, representing as it did in wise, temperate, and affectionate language, that the English king's ambition was likely to lead to great disasters and disgrace, that the Flemings and the Teutons, notorious for their inconstancy and disloyalty, would leave him in the lurch as soon as his treasures were exhausted, and that he had acted hastily in assuming the royal arms and title of France before he had advanced one single step toward the conquest of that country. That the attempt to make himself king of France against the wishes of the people was impracticable and hopeless, and as for abstract right, that he could have no legal pretensions to the crown unless females were capable of inheriting, which was contrary to the immemorial custom of the kingdom, and that if females were capable of transmitting an inheritance which they could not themselves enjoy, there were others then living, the offspring of daughters of French kings, and nearer to the line of direct succession than Edward himself. This last statement was true, and important in its bearing upon the question at issue. At the time when Edward first put forward his claim in 1328, he based it upon the fact that he was the nearest male relative of the king last deceased, but in the year 1332, Joan, Queen of Navarre, daughter of King Louis Hutin, had given birth to a son who on her death became King of Navarre, and who ought now, by the reasoning on which Edward relied, to have been King of France. The Pope's letter was unfortunately a long time on its way, and only reached Edward after he had returned to England and had already gone too far to withdraw in his preparations for his second French campaign. His creditors would not allow him to leave Flanders till he had promised solemnly to return within a certain time, leaving four English earls as hostages in the hands of his allies. Queen Philippa also remained in Flanders, being in expectation of the birth of her fifth child, who was born during his father's absence and was christened, John and surnamed of Gaunt, that is, Ghent, after the place of his nativity. While the king was away from England on his wars, a parliament had been held which is remarkable as being the first in which the influence of the commons in legislation is clearly traceable. The pressure of the king's necessities was then beginning indirectly, but not less surely, to break down the strongholds of feudal prerogative and to promote the cause of political independence. Archbishop Stratford, the Chancellor, who had just come back from the campaign, addressing the grants or great men, the nobles, prelates, and also the commons of the realm, the last probably admitted, as it were, to the bar of the house, declared to them how the king was no less than three hundred thousand pounds in debt and required a liberal subsidy to pay off his creditors and to prosecute the war. Though there had been but little in the first campaign to gratify the national pride, no question of the expediency of undertaking a second seems to have been raised in Parliament. A vote of a tenth was proposed by the King's Council in the Nobles' Chamber, to which they agreed, but upon certain conditions. Among others, 
that a charter should be granted to them provided that the Maltolt, or illegally enhanced wool tax, which had begun in the reign of Edward I and had been recently levied, should never be levied again, and that the grant now to be made should not be drawn into a precedent. The commons, who for deliberation had separated from the nobles after hearing the chancellor's statement, now declared that they could not grant the aid without first consulting the commons of their counties, a stipulation which carries us on in thought to our own times. It is important to note the diffident tone of the commons at this period, and their evident reluctance to undertake the responsibilities of legislation, as compared with the loud and peremptory language of their remonstrances in the later years of the reign. For example, their opinion was asked as to the best means of protecting the south coasts and the commerce of the country against the ravages of the French. The island of Jersey had been taken, and the English shipping and the dwellers on the southern seaboard were at Philip's mercy, of which they received but little for his policy was one of aggression, audacity, and destruction abroad, as it was one of protraction and avoidance at home. The commons answered that these were matters of which they had no knowledge, and begged to be excused for advising upon them. That this was the business of the wardens of the Sinkports, who had honors above all the commons of the land, and who paid no taxes because on them devolved the duty of guarding the coasts. They also begged that two sword-girt knights, not sheriffs or royal officers, should be summoned from each shire to the next parliament to represent the commons. When the commons reassembled, January 19, 1340, after consulting their constituents, they agreed to make a grant of 30,000 sacks of wool in consideration of the redress of grievances and an immediate and unconditional subsidy of 2,050 sacks as the king's wants were urgent. Selected representatives of the mariners of the sink ports were summoned to attend the parliament, and they and other guardians of the coast agreed to furnish 100 ships, half at their own cost and half at that of the government. Before the grant had been actually made, King Edward returned and attended in person at a session held in March 1340, to which a large number of merchants were invited to come for a colloquy to discuss the state of affairs and submit their opinion to the Parliament. The system of summoning special class parliaments was very often acted upon in Edward's reign, and their frequency is an evidence of the growing importance of the interests of what may be called by anticipation the middle class. They have been aptly compared to the commissions of the present day whose business it is to collect facts and evidence and to express opinions intended to serve as a basis for future legislation. The Parliament of 1340 finally agreed to make the King an extraordinary grant for two years to come of the ninth lamb, ninth fleece, and ninth sheaf. The tithe would have seemed to have been first deducted and then one part taken for the King's use, that is, the ninth part of ten less by one. The citizens and burgesses were to grant the ninth part of the estimated value of their chattels, and foreign merchants not living in cities and others that dwell in forests and wastes, and did not live of tillage or store of sheep, were to be set lawfully at the value of the fifteen. But the poor and those who lived of their labor were not to be liable to the fifteenth. They further granted forty shillings to be taken of every last of leather, 
forty shillings of every sack of wool, and forty shillings of every three hundred wool fells, or skins with the fleece on, that passed the sea. It should be borne in mind that the counties Palatine, Durham, and Chester, being unrepresented in the commons, were also exempt from parliamentary taxation. They, however, made a like grant on their own account, and the clergy gave a ninth of their sheaves, fleeces, and lambs. In return for these very liberal subsidies, among the concessions granted were, one, that special high commissioners should be appointed at every parliament to hear complaints of the delay of justice and to give judgment themselves, two, that the sheriffs, who seemed to have abused their powers, should instead of holding their places for ten years as hitherto be elected for one year only, three, that the law of Edward I should be reenacted requiring an uniform standard of weights and measures throughout the kingdom, four, that the present subsidy should not be made a precedent for additional imposts, but that henceforth all grants and aid should be given only by consent of all the estates of Parliament. 5. That the king's taking the title of King of France should never be held to imply subjection of the English to the French crown. 6. That a restraint should be put upon the arbitrary powers of the king's purveyors. These were officers whose duty it was not as now to sell, but to buy provisions, forage, and other supplies for the king's use, especially on his journeys, and it was henceforth provided that they should not compel people to sell to them save only at a price agreed upon between buyer and seller, that the sheriff of the county should state the number of the king's horses for which and no more purveyance was to be made, and that they should take care that the county was not overcharged as to the number of grooms in the king's retinue, but that there should be for every horse a knave, without bringing women, pages, or dogs with them. The laws for the restraint of purveyance were reenacted again and again, notably in the parliaments of 1351 and 1362, in the latter of which, such was the hatred inspired by their exactions, it was ordained that for the future the heinous name of purveyor should be changed to that of buyer. This act may be regarded as the most distinctively marked step of constitutional progress in the reign of Edward III. The form of proceeding in making laws will be understood from a description of the steps taken in Parliament on this occasion. A petition was presented to the King begging for redress of grievance, the introduction of a new enactment or the readjustment of an old one, and the commons presented their petitions with profound submission, kneeling on their knees. The king, acting through his council, considered the prayers of the petition, and as the case might be, granted or rejected or reserved them for future consideration. The petitions to which the king acceded were then embodied in a statute or act of parliament. The statute began with a confirmation of rights and liberties previously granted, then followed a recitation of the prayers of the petitions with the answer to them in the form of enactments of an affirmative or a negative, of a permissive or a prohibitory character. New statutes before the invention of printing were made known to the people by written copies being sent to all the sheriffs who were directed to have them published and cried in every county in England at all courts, fairs, and markets. Edward was now nearly ready for his second invasion of France. 
but as the last subsidy voted by the Parliament was chiefly in kind, he had to borrow 20,000 marks of the City of London, 11,720 pounds from one Anthony Bach, to redeem his great golden crown and the little crown out of pawn at Treves, and issued a commission to the Bishop of Lincoln and others to raise money for him because he wrote, you know that for the conduct of our war in parts beyond sea, and also for the salvation of our kingdom of England and of the English church, we are obliged to spend innumerable sums of money every day. Just as he was on the point of starting, information was brought to Archbishop Stratford that King Philip had got together a large fleet manned by Normans and Genoese, and that it was lying in the harbor of Schlush, ready to intercept the king's passage. Edward, who possessed his full share of the fierce courage of his Angevin ancestors, chafed rather than daunted by this alarming intelligence, issued an order that every available vessel in the southern and eastern ports should be impressed, manned with sailors, and got ready for fighting. The archbishop, having vainly warned the king of his danger, resigned his office of chancellor, and Admiral Sir Robert Morley entreated him to desist from so dangerous an undertaking. But he only flew into a rage and exclaimed, I shall go. Those who are afraid where no fear is may stay at home. End of section 13